Um, my name is Gloria Halverson. I'm a professor of gynecology from Milwaukee, and uh, we're going to talk about cervical cancer prevention in low-resource countries. First, let me ask how many of you um, have done work in low-resource countries. Okay, you're going to be my references uh, to help and throw things in here. And then um, I want to ask you, we didn't know how many people would be interested in this. I'll have a question for you at the end about some further training. So, okay, with that, let's start with the fact that um, in the U.S., cervical cancer was the number one female cancer for women 75 years ago. And then 74 years ago, George Papanicolaou perfected the pap smear, and cervical cancer rate in the U.S. decreased by 75%, which you can see here. So we don't have a big problem with it anymore. But if we look at the magnitude of the problem, there are almost a half a million new cases a year of cervical cancer in the world. 86% of them occur in low-resource countries. Um, at least 275,000 women die of cervical cancer each year, and it's the third most common cancer worldwide. In Africa and Asia, it's the leading cause of cancer deaths. So cervical cancer is still a very large problem, especially in the developing uh, world. Uh, it's estimated that only 5% of women are ever screened for cervical cancer. So there's the problem. We have a test that can pick this up. We can do something about it, but the women aren't able to get tested. Um, we are stuck. There we go. This shows you... Did this come up? There we go. Uh, you can see here the incidence rates of cervical cancer, and it's the darkest countries. So if you look across, this is mostly the developing world that we're looking at. And I work a lot in Nicaragua, um, so this is just a comparison of cervical cancer compared to other cancers for women. And so you can see how high cervical cancer is compared to any of the other kind of cancers that you can get. So we really have a worldwide epidemic to deal with. And it's an epidemic because it is a contagious disease. It is a sexually transmitted infection. Um, one or more of the oncogenic types of human papillomavirus are found in all, uh, in 99% at least, of cervical cancer cases. And as you know, it's being found now in ear, nose, and throat cancers and many other kinds of lung cancers, many other kinds of cancers. Um, this is the key to the fact that we should be able to stop this and do something about it. And that is that most women get infected with HPV near the time of their initial sexual encounter. And then it takes about 20 years for that to develop into cancer if these women are going to um, get cancer. Um, it is responsible as an STD for more deaths than any of the other STDs combined except for HIV. And if we look at HPV, uh, it's, a, it's a virus, and um, there's more than 100 types, but only um, 30, out of 30 or 40 anogenital ones, 15 to 20 are the only kinds that cause cancer. And you can see listed first there's 16 and 18 because those are responsible probably for about 74% of cervical cancers. And then there are um, non-oncogenic types, um, which include 6 and 11, which are responsible for, for warts. Um, what are the risks for cervical cancer? Well, they're listed here, age of onset of sexual activity, Keep in mind, the populations I mostly work with are human trafficked victims who are sometimes six, seven, eight years old when they're taken. They sometimes have 20 partners a night. So, I mean, you can imagine the high-risk population we're dealing with. So, age of onset of sexual activity, number of partners, most important risk factors, but also 
high parity, long-term oral contraceptive use, smoking, uh, concomitant HIV, other STDs, low socioeconomic status, vitamin A deficiency, and douching. Um, there are additional risks because you are in a low-resource country, and that includes that these people have limited income to go pay to have any testing done. They have restricted access to medical care. For example, in Nicaragua, there's a cancer center in Managua. Well, if you live way on the border with Honduras, what you need to do is take a day off from work, and that's a day that you have to use the money from that day to buy your food to feed your children that day. And you have to take that day off and go into Managua to get it by bus for hours and hours to get a pap smear, and then go home and then somehow get a result several weeks later, and then if they tell you to do something about it, you have to go back to... It's just not practical for a lot of the world. Poor nutrition, and they're less aware of health issues and less aware of preventive behavior that they can use, for example, condoms. So we have a lot of high-risk patients in low-risk countries and low-resource countries. Now, currently, what we do for um, cervical cancer prevention is what's called secondary uh, prevention. We identify the precursor lesion and we treat it. So they've already got the virus. That's primary prevention, keeping them from getting the virus. But they've got the virus in that 20-year range. If we can get them in, we can see see that they have it and that they're going to have a lesion, and we treat it. And that's secondary um, prevention. It's, for example, like uh, colonoscopy is secondary prevention for colon cancer because you take out polyps. The virus is already there. The oncogen is there, but you take it out before it turns into a cancer. So we're doing a lot of secondary cancer prevention. And for primary prevention, um, I don't know why that's showing up on the screen there. Um, I can't change it. Um, What can we do for primary prevention? Because that's our key. One, we need to do education to reduce high-risk behavior. Condom use is not 100% for HPV, but it helps a lot. Uh, limiting the number of partners, changing sexual behavior for people, which look at this culture of ours. That's a really hard thing to do. And HPV vaccine has potential uh, for primary prevention. Um, So let's look at HPV vaccine for a minute. Um, This shows um, a genetic tree for different HPV types, and you can see... Um, that you have low-risk and high-risk types. And, for example, you have um, 16 and 18 down here, which are the two most high-risk types, and 6 and 11. You know, one vaccine has, is bivalent and has 16 and 18 in it. The other is quadrivalent, and it has 6 and 11. Um, and then the new one is 9 of, of these. And so... There's thought that, for example, this is called a clade when you have a a genetic grouping like this where the DNA is almost similar. It's thought that if you have a vaccine against 16, it may also help prevent against 35 because they're genetically very similar. So that's part of what's in behind the um, HPV vaccine um, developments. Now, What about using HPV vaccine in low-resource countries? Um, Here are some of the reasons why it's a problem. First of all, it's cost. There has been a study done that has predicted that HPV vaccine will be extremely preventive for cervical cancer when it reaches the price of 10 U.S. dollars for a course of vaccine. Right now, it's more than $160 for one treatment, and it takes three treatments. So that is huge problem number one for vaccine um, use. The companies like Merck um, that makes Gardasil, they have a program where they pick five countries a year and will provide free vaccine for them if you fill out the forms and meet appropriate criteria. I've 
well, Cameroon was one of those countries, and I've talked to um, Edith. You aren't in here, are you? I don't know that she's here this year. Um, they got HPV sent in free from Merck. Their, the program, the way it's set up, you're not allo- allowed to charge more than one dollar for the vaccine. It comes to customs. Merck has on it the value of the vaccine at $160 a dose. So they're asked to pay 40% in customs duty. And they can only charge a dollar. So they can't afford to get the free vaccine to give it out. Um, There's a poor public understanding of HPV, so people don't know to get vaccinated. There's a cultural acceptability. Some cultures are very concerned about what these Mazungas are doing coming in and, you know, they're going to sterilize them or whatever if they give them a vaccine. It's got to be refrigerated. So that is a big problem in rural areas. And it's very difficult for people who are transient and come and go and hard to reach to get them in for the three doses split over several months. Um, and you've got to get adolescents in to be effective. You've got to get this, um, you know, before they get the HPV, vac- uh, the HPV virus. It doesn't do anything for you once you have it. So huge problems. Right now, this is not practical for low-resource countries. So we have to come up with a new approach because the way we're doing it right now is not working. And as I said to you before, What we have going for us is the fact that cervical cancer takes time, on average 10 years, to develop. And um, this shows that, you know, some of it reverses. This is why pap smear, just parenthetically, in this country, recommendations have been moved back to an older age. Because if you see a a teenager who's been having sex, it's likely 80% of them are going to be HPV positive. And you're going to get them into this big, expensive evaluation and treatment program, and they are going to clear it. It's going to be transient, and it's going to go away on its own. Its immune system is going to take care of it. That's why they've been pushed back here in the United States. So, you know, to get from um, CIN1 to CIN3 and further takes time, and then this picture sort of shows you coposcopically the differences um, from a little CIN1 lesion to a 2 lesion, to a CIN3. So we can see and actually tell how far advanced it is with a colposcope, and that helps in the treatment. So right now, the goal of cervical cancer screening programs is to find high-grade precursors so that cancer can be prevented. So can we can come up with a better way in secondary prevention, since we're not there with primary prevention, to treat this. And obviously the gold standard is colposcopy. Um, You can tell Don Thompson, if you see him at the GHO booth, that he was our poster child for the colposcopy we're doing in uh, Nicaragua. But most places places don't have colposcopes. So, um, pap smears, that's our standard in this country, correct? And brushes and brooms and um, now a lot of people in this country have switched to the liquid-based um, cytology, and you can look at that and you can see low-grade uh, effects, and then you can look and you can see the high nuclear cytoplasmic ratio and the, the dark hyperchromatic nuclei and say, well, this is more advanced. So pap spears work. They've worked in this country. If we look at studies, um, which are fairly rep- Large and these are in low-resource countries now, you can see that, and a good number of participants, that the sensitivity and sensitivity is not that great. The specificity um, is much better. Sensitivity is not that great, but it's good enough to have us get an abnormal because we have a protocol we do then to go on and do colposcopy and biopsies and, and look at it further. But there's limitations to doing pap smears. I can tell you that when I teach workshops in Africa and Asia on how to do visual inspection with acetic acid, I ask at the beginning, how many of you have access to a pap smear in your country? And I may get one person in the audience, and that's usually someone in Kenya, because Kajabi has a pathologist, 
but from all over the country they send it there, and it still may take them a month or six weeks to get a result back. And the rest of the countries, they do not have access to pap smears. And a pap smear, if someone doesn't take it right, they may not get the whole um, specimen. It may not be fixed properly, although for those of you who can do them in low-resource places, hairspray works fine to fix them. You don't have to buy the expensive spray. And um, there's a random distribution of the abnormal cells. Um, the big problems is it's a complex laboratory test. You have to get sampling instruments. You have to buy slides. You have to buy fixative. You need reagents, cover slips, microscopes. You need supplies that you have to keep getting and have access to. You have to have a trained cytotech to screen your pap smears. And then you need a pathologist to look at the pap smears. Pathologists are woefully not available in a lot of low-resource countries. Um, and you need to monitor the quality of your lab and compare them. And this just, when people are, babies are dying, women are dying in childbirth, people are dying of malaria, cervical cancer screening is just not high on the priority list for governments to invest that kind of money in to do that kind of things. So the other thing is that reporting takes time. So how are you going to find that patient again who lives three days away when you get an abnormal result? It's a little bit easier now because of the cell phones, but I just came back from an area in the world for three days out and back. Where, I mean, there's no cell phone reactivity or, or anything. Um, so pap smears are just not the option um, in low-resource countries as it is for us in the United States. So um, what else can be done? Well, HPV DNA probes are a screen, and you know in this country that's becoming more common, and I think that HPV screening is actually going to replace pap smears here at one point. So how about using them? Well, how about their specificity and their sensitivity. If you compare the sensitivity of a PAP to HPV, the HPV screening is much better. If you look, um, this, that's a study done in India. If you look at this study that was done in Finland, these are good sized studies. The HPV test is more sensitive than PAP smears for de detecting CIN3 or greater. Um, this is a study done in Thailand Bottom line, in a low-resource setting, a single round of HPV testing was associated with a significant reduction in the number of advanced cervical cancers, and that's from cervical cancer. So real potential there. The problem is skills, equipment, costs, need to transport your specimen. The fact that results, results aren't immediate. Many of the same problems that we have with doing a pap smear other than you don't need the pathologist but you need somebody trained on this machinery and also for many of the women in low resource countries and I hope I save time to get to what to do about this point they don't want to be screened they're afraid because you're going to do a test for cervical cancer and they don't want to hear that they have cancer because it means they're going to die and they don't want to come in and have uh, the screening done. Um, you don't have the clinical expertise, very limited capacity for confirmatory or diagnostic testing, so you get a positive HPV, you need to do a colposcopy. Well, they don't have a colposcope either. Um, poor infrastructure for limited reporting. It's interesting, the cancer registries, when I gave you the statistics for low-resource countries, they're probably wrong because there, there just are not good cancer registries to even keep track. They're probably much higher than the figures I gave you. And what you have to do is have a different mentality than we do here spreading out office visits in this country. If you see it, take the opportunity and treat it. Deal with it right then. That's what we have to be able to come up with. I do want to mention to you that there's CARE HPV that's been in development quite a while. This... Um, company, Kijan, is making this for use in low-resource countries. It's been um, extensively tried now in China, 
and um, in Latin America. Um, they said two or three years ago it would be on the market by the end of that year and then the next quarter and then next quarter, and it still hasn't happened, but it's supposedly um, very close to happening. And um, <clears throat> this takes, it's an easier test. It takes two and a half hours to do it as opposed to 16 hours for the other test. But I've been trying to figure out why it's not been released because I keep telling people about it. And I finally, just this month, found a couple studies. It's not as good as a regular HPV test. It's not as accurate. But it may be better than having nothing. I mentioned the problem of women wanting not come in and be screened. Um, there are countries where it's really taboo to come in and have a pelvic exam done. Um, women do not want anyone doing that. Um, Carrie has worked in India and knows when we first started that program, the women wouldn't allow a pelvic exam. Um, so this is something to keep in mind that they're looking at, and that's self-screening. And that's giving woman the Q-tip in the container and sending her home and let her screen herself, collect a sample herself. And you can see that they had a 90.8% agreement between the self-collected and the cl clinician one. Um, and the home-based screening, 71.5%. The clinic self-screening, 53.8%. 80 percent of women are willing to do self-screening. It's not 100%, but 80% are willing to do it. Some are still afraid of having it done. Some do not have the privacy in their home because of the 11 other people sleeping in the room with them, and they only have that one room. They still don't collect it, but it's a help. There's another thing you may have heard about or read about called cervicography. Um, this is uh, two pictures of it, a side view and uh, head-on. It ain't pretty. <laughs> um, it was made by Duke, uh, four third, year, third world countries, low resource countries. I don't like it at all. I can't use it. And the reason is that um, you've got this magnifier here um, over your eyes, and if you move your head at all, it goes out of focus. And for someone, you know, who does colposcopy and all this, I find it very, very difficult. So I'm really not sure if that's going to be practical. But I put it in at that point because I wanted to show you what it looks like our alternatives are for the secondary prevention in low-risk countries. VIA, automatic PEP, Automated pap smears, HPV testing, and cervicography. And if you look at it, if they're accurate, safe, practical, affordable, and available, the only one that comes in yeses all across there is visual inspection with acetic acid, which is what the World Health Organization has been suggesting. And the reason we put this workshop here is because if you're in a family practice residency or an OBGYN residency, you don't learn how to do this in the United States. None of us were trained in how to do this, but it's very, very simple. Um, visual inspection with acetic acid, use in low-resource settings. It will identify precancerous lesions effectively. It's not invasive, easy to perform, inexpensive. You don't have to have a physician to perform it. You don't have to have a nurse to perform it. You can train community health workers to do it. Now, you have to continue looking at you know, quality, of course. You get immediate results, so you can do something right away, and the supplies are readily available for it. Is it any good? Well, here's a meta-analysis from 57 studies that looked at um, high and low resource countries in both urban and rural. You can see the specificity is 92%, which is good. The sensitivity of 80% is even higher than the pap smear, and the um, positive predictive value is 10% because even, you know, if you have HPV anywhere along the line, you may not, may not be in a precancerous place. Um, so if it's positive, it doesn't mean you have cancer. Cervicitis will make it positive, and that's very, very common. So high false positive rate. The good thing is the negative predictive value. 90%. So if you have a negative VIA, you can be pretty sure that that woman is okay. Now, I have um, 
This is an analysis of five cervical cancer screening tests. VIA is visual inspection with acetic acid. VILI, which I'm going to show you pictures of a minute, uh, in a minute, is enhancing the visual inspection using Lugol's solution. VIAM is magnification, using magnification with it, compared to the pap smear and the um, HPV test. And you can see it really looks pretty good. Um, <coughs> all right, what is VIA and how do you do it? Well, you can perform it any time in the menstrual cycle, which is another example, uh, uh, another really valuable thing because women will come in and they're having their period and you know they're not going to be back for three years unless there's some other health crisis. You can still do it. You put a speculum in, you visualize the cervix, you clean it off, and then you take dilute acetic acid, 4% acetic acid, and you put it on the cervix. Now what is 4%, another word for 4% acetic acid? Vinegar. Over-the-counter Vinegar, inexpensive, not cider vinegar, red wine vinegar, plain <laughs> vinegar. You wait one minute. This is critical because we are not patient people. You have to wait a minute and then inspect the cervix. Make sure you see the squamoclumnar junction and then look for acetoid changes and you're done. That's it. Um, there are three possible answers you can get to your VIA test when you look after you put it on. One is it's negative, and that means in an after minute, you don't see any white there, or if you see white, it's sort of just um, through a mirror darkly, you know, a little bit white, not very defined, scattered, not near the squamoclumnar junction. Or, you can have a VIA positive. Now, it's a little bit different than our cancer screening. Positive here doesn't mean cancer. Positive means that it looks like there's some sort of lesion. So you're having dense, white, thick, that's easy to see. The edges are defined, and it does touch the junction, the squamoclumnar junction, because you know that's where your cancer is going to start. And if, you have, if it's a growth on the cervix, the growth turns white. So three classifications, the negative, no white, the positive, which is white, and the third is suspicious for cancer. So people sometimes get those two confused. Suspicious for cancer is going to take you on a whole different route for the algorithm for treatment. So um, here I mentioned what the three types are, and that's the visual inspection with acetic acid and just your naked eye. This is visual inspection with acetic acid and magnifying it. And this is with the Lugol solution. You can see how well that sticks out with the Lugol solution. Um, so that's what it is, is just looking for these white lesions after you put that on. So if you're going to do this, who, who should you test? Um, you test between the ages of 30 and 45. We talked about the reason you don't test younger women, because um, there, you get too many positive that's going to clear on their own. And this is the highest ages for your precancerous changes. Later 40s, 50s, you start seeing the cervical cancer. Now, there's a caveat to this. I don't follow this recommendation at all because of working with these girls that start being sexually active at age 7. Um, and there are no criteria anywhere. Um, so we basically ask anecdotally around, what's the youngest you've seen cervical cancer? Um, in the group you work with, oh, we had someone at 23 years old who died of cervical cancer. Oh, well, we better get screening a lot before then. So this is a general WHO recommendation. Um, and these are the risk factors, young age, at onset of sexual activity, multiple partners, history of a uh, sexually transmitted infection, mother or sister with cervical cancer, previous abnormal pap smoking, or HIV positive or other immunosuppressed people. So that's low technology, and that's what you need in a low-resource country. And what is low technology? It works at the lowest resource level of the healthcare system. It's inexpensive. There's no rate-limiting steps. You don't need a physician to do it. You don't need a sophisticated setting. Does it work? Well, here, here's a study 
um, that was done in, in India, 17 villages, 3,000 women. You can see they picked up uh, 14% um, positive with BIA and 15.6 when they use Lugol compared to a cytology of 5.4%. So it doesn't seem it's missing anything. It is getting more false positives. Uh, if you look here, you can see these was done in South Africa, India, Zimbabwe, China. <coughs> look at the numbers of screening. These are large numbers. And you can see the sensitivity and specificities listed, which are really in the range that we've been at. And as I said, this is not a perfect test. In fact, you wind up screening, going on and looking at many more women because of the false positive rate. But this is a different public health principle than what we use here in the United States. And this is the principle. We're talking about population interventions. We're talking about huge numbers of women in countries who are dying. It is not in this country as we're only talking about you and what's the most cost-effective thing for you to do. We're talking about all of you women here in the, in the room. Um, and good is not necessarily the enemy of best. We have things in this country we can say, well, it's not good enough. Well, there you have nothing or you have good. Good is good. It may not be the best, but it's good for that setting. And that's the public health principle we have to look at when we're looking at low-resource countries. This is a picture of a VIA-negative cervix. Remember, we have negative, positive, and suspicious for cancer. Now tell me what this is. Suspicious for cancer. Okay, It's not positive. It's suspicious for cancer. You are not going to treat this there because if you do, you treat it wrong. Positive. 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 Very good. I'll ask my question for the end now. Um, we've talked about, we do overseas um, workshops where I really guarantee people in the hour and a half we have when they come in, by the time they leave, they're going to be able to do VIA because we're talking to nurse practitioners and physicians and people who already are relatively sophisticated in looking at medical things. How many of you would be interested in actually a training workshop doing VIA at a conference like that? Quite a few. Okay, thank you. Um, how about this cervix? Negative. Negative. Very good. Okay, this is a study done in Nepal. VIA as a test did not miss any lesion detected by pap smear and confirmed by cervical biopsy. That's really important. You are not going to miss a woman with the disease. You'll get more positives than actually have HPV positive um, tests, but you're not going to miss anybody. And this is a conclusion in a commentary from Lancet. VIA represents a proven simple means of identifying cervical intraepithelial neoplasma, neoplasia in developing countries. Okay, that's it on VIA. But as I said to you, if your screening and testing really has no value, for prevention unless you're going to do something about it. And <coughs> the way to do it is right then while you have the person in front of you. So you have to list testing to treatment. Okay, you're not going to do a cervical cone in the middle of Liberia. You're going to do, you know, out in nowhere. Well, what do we have that we can do in a low-resource country? And the Best answer to cut to the quick is cryosurgery. Um, you can do electrocautery, and it will get rid of mild and moderate lesions, and it's inexpensive, and the equipment is pretty durable, although I question that on anything <laughs> of our equipment. We have, we're very fortunate in our Nicaragua setting. We have a coposcope, we have a leap machine, we have all of this stuff, and I don't know what happens between times we're there that it just starts falling apart about it. But, um, it's not good for large lesions. You don't get any tissue to look at to see what you're actually treating. You can't really determine well how much tissue you destroy because of the spread of the heat that you're not going to see. You need a local anesthetic. You have to have electricity. 
um, the equipment's not widely available, and you obviously shouldn't do it while someone's pregnant. Let's just, that's pretty much right now your only option to cryotherapy. So what, why cryo? Well, it's very effective with small and moderate lesions. It's inexpensive. You can train non-physicians to do it. You need no anesthetic. You need no electricity. It has very few side effects or complications, and it does not affect the patient's future reproductive health. That's very critical. The disadvantage is that if you try to do a large lesion, which we're going to talk about who's candidates for this, you may not get it all covered by the cryoprobe, and the, and the treatment only extends about 5 millimeters out from the probe, so you may miss some. Uh, again, you're destroying <coughs> tissue, so if you want really to know, because you're worried that it might be a little more advanced than you're thinking, um, you need to do a biopsy first and have somewhere you can send that. Unfortunately, despite trying in many countries to set up methods, we wind up bringing biopsies uh, back with us here. Again, it's hard to know how much tissue you've destroyed. Women have to be warned. They can have a very, 20% will get a very profuse watery discharge afterwards because basically what you've done is a burn, and it will weep. And so they'll notice this discharge, but which may be a little bloody, <coughs> and can last for four to six weeks. <coughs> Excuse me. You do need to have a supply of a coolant, and it can be either carbon dioxide or nitrous oxide. Probably nitrous oxide is a little better you know, result-wise, but every single country has a Coca-Cola or Pepsi bottling plant where they have carbon dioxide tanks in the country. So carbon dioxide is often easier to get in a low-resource country, and you should be able to get it. How do you do it? Again, it's really easy. You um, have the carbon dioxide or the nitrous oxide, and the cryo guns, I have to tell you, come either for nitrous oxide or carbon dioxide. You can't use a carbon dioxide gun for a nitrous oxide tank. So, you know, you get the appropriate gun. You do a double freeze. You put the gun over the, le you put it over the lesion. You pull the trigger and start the freeze. You um, apply it for three minutes until you get a frost ball. You pull the trigger back and stop the flow and you unfreeze it. And you thaw it. You have to wait about five minutes because there's actually ice sitting on there and it's a little distorting. And then you put it back on and you do it again for three minutes and you're done. That's it. Um, that's a tank uh, with a gun on it. You've got to be sure you've got enough gas in it to, uh, because the lower pressures you get are not going to freeze appropriately. And that's something that you have to watch because I have found in low-resource settings that my tanks get leaks in them and and other things that we don't see here. And there are various tips that are used, and I tend to use the uh, flat tip that the second one's over here. I never use the first tip. The first tip is to get a lesion that's going into the cervix, and you don't want to do that, as we will come to. You've got to see the lesion and know that you're getting it all when you're treating. And if you put that inside a cervix, you're going to get horrible, horrible cramping, and you can't see what you're freezing and what you're doing. So Maybe for dermatology or something, that tip has a purpose, but I don't think it has a purpose for this. Flat tip does a nice cover. The other one I also use that gets a little way, you know, if you have a big aversion on the cervix, will we'll, we'll just be a nicer fit. And then the last one will go deeper into the cervix. Again, not as useful. So when you put your gun on and you press the gas, you see how there's frost over um, the metal, and you can actually see that, that uh, ice ball, we call it, that's forming around the cervix. When you get an ice ball that's out about that far, you're, you're done. And when you break the uh, pressure so the gas stops flowing, you get this, um, this is what it looks like. It's frozen, and you've got to wait for it to thaw out. That will all turn pink again. And then you put it back on again, and you do it again, and you're finished. So if you think of the steps involved for doing a pap smear compared and then 
a colposcopy and then a, a biopsy and then a leap or whatever, and you compare this, it's very, very simple. There are criteria to use it safely and effectively, and these are very important. The size of the lesion and where it's located is critical. If you have a lesion that covers your whole cervix, bigger than the probe, you can't use that. You can't do that. They have to be referred on. Um, this is a great kind of setup for countries where, um, for example, in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, they have a big referral network, and to do it out in the communities and have uh, healthcare workers trained to do it and treat the easy stuff and then the hard stuff referred on in to a physician to work with. It's a very effective way of delivering uh, health care. So you have to cover it. It can't go in the canal, again, where you can't see it. can't go in the vaginal walls. That will hurt a lot. And when you have a cryo gun in, you have to keep your eye on it to make sure it's not sucking in part of the vaginal wall because uh, it will burn that. And uh, you have to see the whole squamocolumnar junction because, remember, that's where your cancer is going to start. So if you look in, the first thing you do when you put on your vinegar, the first question in your head is, can I see the squamocolumnar junction? And it has to be yes. And if it's yes, then it's, is it BIA negative, positive, or suspicious for cancer? So you have to see the whole lesion, and again, you have no suspicion of cancer. Those things you refer on. It's contraindicated if you think there could be cancer, if the lesion is large, um, or there are things that give you an increased risk of failure, but it doesn't mean you can't try it, but keep in mind you may be less successful. So, for example, if I thought I had a low-grade SIL, compare squamous interepithelial lesion compared to a high-grade, I can probably wipe that out. I'd be a little more concerned if there was a high-grade that there might be an area that I'm going to miss that could keep growing. So if you have a very large aversion on a cervix, because you've got lots of nooks and crannies in it, um, if you can't see the whole junction, if there's polyps or ulcers or a lot of distortion from a laceration at childbirth, for example, uh, or an atrophied cervix, those are contraindications. Side effects, some people, not a lot, but some people will get mild cramping. And what we do, which may have a placebo effect too, is we offer everybody an Advil before we do it, you know, and um, we don't see a lot of problem. I have had people have vasovagal responses when they stand up after it, so I've had people just stay laying down. I actually had a woman's surgeon in the office. This was in the U.S. At the, years ago when we were doing cryo for something. Something happened, and so she came running out in the hall to tell me and passed out on the floor in the hall because she had a vasovagal response. So, um, you know, I just have them lay down for a few minutes. So you have to tell them about the watery discharge and the spotting. But the wonderful thing is there's no change in fertility, no change in pregnancy complications, and very, very rare um, cervical stenosis. By the way, you can do this with an IUD string in. Um, okay, so how does this work? Here's the, the SAFE study. This is a huge study. I'm going to talk about a little bit more that they did in Thailand. Um, and this is follow-up. I'm going to talk about the actual study, but this is the follow-up a year later. And you can see that 85.5% had no disease after the cryo. So you've helped 85% of people. That's pretty good. In this country, if you'd say you had a 15% rate it wasn't working, that's not good enough because we have things that can do better. But again, if you don't have something, 85% of people aren't going to get cancer that you, you've taken care of. I think that's helpful. Um, and they can still see the uh, squamocolumnar junction in most of them. They had um, the 6.5% <clears throat> were BIA abnormal. And of that 6.5%, 83.3% were coposcopically abnormal. So, um, you know, maybe 3 or 4% of people. And this is the finding of low grade, two high grade, and one adenocarcinoma. And remember, adenocarcinoma start in the canal and probably then grow out. So that's probably why that is more easy to miss. But just to wrap, wrap up a little on this project, um, it was done 
um, in Thailand. Johns Hopkins participated. Bill and Melinda Gates funded it. And they trained mobile teams of non-healthcare uh, you know, professionals to go out in these rural villages. Um, they tra- well, no, they trained nurses, actually, to do the cryo part of it, okay? You can tra- they trained non-nurses to do screening. And then they offered immediate cryo if, it was, if they fit the protocol or they referred people um, who, who didn't. And here's a picture of a training that they did on a model to train the workers to do cryotherapy. Um, and here's what they found. Um, 85% of women were negative. They found some tested positive, and they had less than 1% had cancer. So that's a result of the population that they were seeing. And this I put up because um, of the ones that was positive, and you can see the ones that had cryotherapy, um, look at the major complication rate. It's zero. And especially if you're taking a short-term team in, for example, you better be sure that you're not walking out of the country and leaving a problem behind you. That, that's very critical. So the results, they said, these are surveys of the women. 89.6% said that the testing experience was better than they expected. 99.8% felt informed enough about it. 98.5% were glad they made the decision to be screened. 998 would recommend this to their friends and family. This is unusual to have this good a result in a study. So if you can get a woman to go back and tell her friend, that's your best um, advertising. And so the conclusions that they reached is that a single visit approach using VIA combined with immediate treatment or referral, it appears safer testing and treating women, it's acceptable to patients and providers, it's feasible for use in low-risk settings, and it has the potential to be an efficient method of cervical cancer prevention in low-resource settings. This study was done because the question is, what if you can't, you know, we have people, we used to have people come in for their pap smears every year. You know, we still do some, now we're going to two and three years. But what if they can, you only see them once in their lifetime? and you never see them back again. Are you going to have any impact? <clears throat> this was a Lancet study out of India. Again, 50,000 people almost uh, that were had interventions, and um, they found a 25% decrease in cervical cancer, a 35% decrease in cervical cancer mortality, a 27% decrease in them getting advanced disease, and a significant decline in disease burden within seven years from the beginning screening and three and a half years from the completion. So that's even if you can only screen them one time in their life, it has effectiveness to it. Um, this is a, another study that um, in Africa, which basically I think showed similar things. Um, and so the policy conclusions to this is that a single visit approach is always more effective and more cost effective than setting up a protocol that's going to need multiple visits to come in to take care of them. Even once in a lifetime testing can reduce cervical cancer incidence and mortality up to 25%. And visual inspection methods and HPV testing are consistently more effective than pap smear screening. And uh, for many third world low resource countries, um, VIA is going to be your treatment of choice. Now, I just put a couple slides at the end if we had time, and I'm going to take the time for this, a couple caveats of things we learned. We went into, you may recognize this room, we went into, um, I got a call from somebody who was a gynecologist and had gone in the brothels in Mumbai in India, spent two weeks there, took off from her practice, spent two weeks there, and in two weeks, two women allowed her to do a pelvic exam. And she said, this is a waste of time and called me and said, I know these women are high risk. What can we do? So I went over there with her because I said, I think they're afraid. And they don't understand. Education is critical. And if you're using healthcare workers 
you know, they need to be doing education first. We actually left our team and went a day early out to the uh, place we were going to be working. And we took a focus group. We started with 37 HIV positive, multi-TB resistant women because we figured um, who had all been prostitutes. We figured that was our highest risk group there. And we did focus groups with them and we did training. And we actually taught them about what we would do. We actually showed them the cryo gun. And at the end, I just prayed and I said, how many of you would like us not allow us. How many of you would like us to screen you? And of 37, 37 raised their hands. And thus started a very effective cervical cancer screening program that's now going on in the brothels in Mumbai. Education is critical. The other thing I put this on here is, can you read what that says over the white vinegar from there? Synthetic. In a lot of countries, they sell synthetic vinegar and it doesn't work. And I learned that country, and I take my own, I go to the supermarket so it's fresh shortly before I'm going to leave, and I carry my own vinegar with me. But if you're somewhere in a low-resource country and you're not getting good results, check and see if you've got a synthetic vinegar. It's just much, much less potent. And um, I'll just throw in the fact that there's some new things developing, such as people doing telemetry where they're um, sending, having pictures, people take pictures on their iPhones of the cervix and transmitting them and getting consultation um, and doing, like I said, electronic cervical cancer control. Here they're um, taking the pictures. And there's some advantage and disadvantages to that. And there's some research going on with um, using cryo pens, um, which um, you can treat like 30 women off a single battery, and it's much easier than using a tank and some heat therapy. So with that and the HPV care, there may be some changes coming up in this area, which would be really good. So we have time for some questions, if anybody has any. Sir? It's just an observation. Uh, they cut off the, the screening at 45, and I think probably the reason for that is it doesn't work very well on postmenopausal patients, and the villi doesn't work well because there's no glycogen in the tissue at that age postmenopausal. And I've been doing VIA for about 25 years or so. I started doing it when I was in practice in the States doing pap smear. Just teach myself, just mm-hmm. put vinegar on after I'm done and look at it. So, mm-hmm. it correlates mm-hmm. it. so it's an easy thing to learn. Supportive. 25 years experience with it. Thank you. And anybody who's uh, in a low resource country and you can add to this presentation, I'd like I'd love to learn from you and hear what you have to say. So just a question. While you have these ladies in, especially the high risk ones, are you doing any checks for other STDs while you've got them there? Gonorrhea, chlamydia, I mean, how does that correlate? question is, do we do any other testing while we have them in there? And um, you know, I'm a gynecologist. That's the most important thing is to, to check all this stuff. Yes, we do because they come together. If they have HPV, they probably are going to have these other things. And if you have somebody, for example, with an active gonorrhea, you're probably going to get a positive VIA because the cervix is inflamed. So we actually wind up treating um, using a syndromic approach usually because we don't have cultures, um, the STI and then having them come back, telling them they need to come back for another VIA because you're going to get uh, a huge number of people that you're then treating that don't, you know, need treatment. You know, for um, pre-malignancy, they need treatment for their other STIs, but especially because they go together, yes, we do. Um, but as I said, I've even, I've taken um, sets of um, chlamydia testing down with a group of prostitutes still actively in the brothels and had 100% of the tests be negative, even though, you know, there's a gucky discharge, they're complaining of pain, their cervix is tender, you know, I mean, they have PID. Um, and I, I'm, maybe the heat, I don't know what it is, but there's is really a problem, and because of cost getting testing out, many places don't have the capability to actually do chlamydia testing or other things. If you have a microscope, you can 
you know, look at BV and trick and things like that. But we just go ahead and use WHO syndromic approach and just treat them empirically. Yes, ma'am. I went to Haiti and did a clinic, and I was just amazed at the number of women that had, like, fungal cervicitis. And you talked about inflammation in the cervix kind of throwing the test. It was very hard for me to, I mean, the lesions, especially with Lugals, really jumped out. But, I mean, any tips on what you do? Yeah, you have to treat them. You can't tell. BIA doesn't discriminate enough. It's either positive or it's negative, and inflammation is going to make it positive. And if you're in a population where you've got a lot of inflammation, you have to treat them first. Yeah. I've applied the vinegar with, like, a Scopet and a spray bottle. Do you guys think one way is better than the other? Anybody Someone else? had some concerns that scopettes were, like, maybe taking the cells off the Yeah. <coughs> you do want to be careful about abrading or even making it bleed or whatever with uh, rubbing it. But we use scopettes, but we soak them. I mean, they're really, so I don't have a spray bottle. And so <coughs> it's like a <coughs> Yeah, I don't have the experience to answer that. But I would think a spray bottle would be good. But you can use a scopette if you really, really soak it and then just press it on. We don't rub it on. We sort of press it on the top and then press it a little lower and, you know, and we put the vinegar in a cup for that person so we don't re-dip the bottle. So I sprayed it on with a 3cc syringe and a needle on the end. I can use the same one again and again, but sure. I can touch the patient with it. That's a great idea. This gentleman used a 3cc syringe and sprayed it on the cervix, and that would be good. Someone had a question? Yes. So I understand that, like, for a lot of these women, it's like a one-time thing, like you're catching them when they come in. Do they have any recommendations for, like, following up, like if they had a negative BIA? We are we are doing that again. There's so little data, um, but and especially with uh, these high, the high risk populations that I'm dealing with, we are having them actually come back yearly now because we have no idea. But we've got over 800, and you know we're finding our pickup really is is dropping off, which is good. But in the first year or two, we we do find some that were not picked up before. But yes, I mean if you have follow up, you should do it. You know. If it's negative, I wouldn't do it more than once a year. Um, depends, I guess, on when you can see people, even if you do it every two to three years. But I wouldn't do it more often than that on a negative one. But if I could follow up, I would. They did this study not because it was optimal, and they only prevented 25% with it. So, you know, you do want to do it. And also, we know from this country that people who have had negative PAPs may then wind up with abnormal PAPs later on as the lesion develops. So. If the BIA is positive? Yeah, like if you do your trial and then do... Oh, yeah, they, they, they come back again in a year, and we see them in a year. Yeah, absolutely. And we keep lists, and we try to get people out trying to find them. Um, yeah. And because we're doing this as a study, um, we do biopsies before our cryo and bring them back to, our, to the states because we're trying to look. I actually am in a situation down there. I have two-hour turnaround pap smears. I take a pathologist with me. And so I have a pap smear, I have a VIA, and then if we have a lesion, we have a biopsy, and I have colposcope and a cryo unit and a leave down there, which is really, I don't have that anywhere else in the world that I go, but it's a good way that we're collecting comparison data, you know, and, and able to tell. So, yes, we see all the positives back in a year. And we have had a treated woman who progressed her disease, I think, because they, I think because the lesion went a little up in the canal because we still didn't see it when she came back with the abnormal pap, so we had to refer her in for treatment. Yes? A little bit along those same lines, for um, patients that you're seeing for another infectious cause like gonorrhea or chlamydia, is there a time frame that um, you need to kind of wait before you look again with VIA? Is there a time frame that you need to wait? I, I don't I don't know data on that. I'll give you an answer of what I think, but I don't know data. Does anyone have data, Rick? Oh, okay. Um, I think that uh, I would wait at least six weeks, maybe even two to three months. I mean, it takes a while for inflammation to clear. Part of the problem for me is these women are still actively prostituting, some of them, and then they go back and they get reinfected. So, you know, it, it's really tough. But there's no point bringing them back that week. You know, it's, it's uh, not going to be cleared up. Yes. 
Yeah, if, if you're in a situation like we would be in, in like where you don't have, there's nobody doing cobalt biopsies, uh, cones, leaves. And if this was all you had to offer, what would you do if you had a, you know, an inadequate <laughs> study where you, where you saw a lesion that went up into the, you know, despite into the, the canal. Lesion, went up into the cervix? Yeah. Or I, it was too big for, you know, or if you had the whole cervix covered with a single white, you couldn't do it, you couldn't cry or what would you do? Well, I don't thank you for this question because it's really hard, and I don't think there's a right answer, so I'm going to go out on a limb with this, but that's a very real situation. And I hope you heard, Rick, that he is at a major hospital in a major city in Liberia, and he does not have access. This is just what we're saying. He doesn't have access to leaps and cryos. And um, I would probably, if I could, because of your situation, you have a hospital and anesthetic, I'd probably do a colonization on him. If I thought they had a high-grade lesion, if I thought they had a low-grade lesion, I'd keep watching it. Yeah, I would just watch it. But if, thank you, if I'm seeing something that I think is, could be getting toward invasive, I would do a cone on them and send the pathology out and no one's going to take me two months to get it back. But if I thought, yeah, it could be high-grade, I would do that. Because you'll still save a life if you catch um, carcinoma in situ, you know, for example. We are out of time. So I'll hang around if you need anything. Thank you so much.